Welcome back to Remember Shuffle. The early bird gets killed with one stone, as the saying goes. And in this episode, we're doing a double feature on the 2000s cult classic, The Boondock Saints, and its writer slash director slash music composer, Troy Duffy. Some have called Troy Duffy a talentless overall sporting boor, but to those people, we say that blood from a stone is thicker than water. Since good things come to those who think alike, we should be reaping the grass that's greener on the other side real soon. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid fucking roll for. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Our ed- education, like such as South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like such as, and we sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. Brittany, bitch. Ladies and gentlemen. We got him. Oh, Charlie! Oh! Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. How you doing, JD? Pretty good, you know. Uh, spring's coming. It makes my brain work a little bit better. I uh, saw Giordano recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a peace be upon him. For dealing with that i got unexpectedly like super trashed and like jordana had to like drag me around and take care of me a few weeks ago so i'm still <laughs> you made some interesting choices yeah that's for sure there one revelation has come to me since that night which is that uh the guy the blind owl should have immediately cut me off i was visibly drunk enough to be cut off like by any normal person at that point man i have never either been or seen someone be cut no. off i don't think no. bartenders do that i backhanded a drink an empty drink over like spilling that. the ice into like behind the bar and the guy was just like i got that <laughs> <laughs> oh that's gonna be very relevant today when we start talking about the film overnight <laughs> yes yeah okay so i looked that up and i didn't see it having anything to do with our, our hero Tor- troy duffy here Oh, I mean, it's a documentary entirely about Troy Duffy. Yeah, there's like no voiceover, barely any title cards, just a lot of raw archival footage of an insane man, (laughs) like the most. The most out of touch, oblivious, fucking, I can't find the adjective. <laughs> that is, hard is drink. Oaf? Oaf, yeah, Oaf, Oaf is, is perfect. Yeah, they could, they could have called it Ofernight. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, this guy gets a script picked up and he thinks that he has slayed all of Hollywood. He just, yeah, delusional is the word. That's the adjective I was looking for. He's one of the okay. most delusional men you'll ever see. Uh, researching for this is, was, was pretty tough, man. <laughs> you had to watch one 90 minute movie. Wait, what movie? <laughs> Sorry, Jordano told me we were doing an episode on BDS, and I have some really disturbing numbers here. So like both the 2019-2020 fiscal year, we got the U.S. government gave 3.8 oh, no. billion. <laughs> both years. Go on. We, we are talking today about one of the most formative films of my adolescent years, the 2000s, The Boondock Saints. What are your guys' experiences of this film? My experience is very much in line with everybody else's. And so Troy Duffy, the brains behind the movie, both writer and director, he said that some of the magic of the Boondock Saints was that it didn't get the wide release. And so as a result, it made a ton of money in home video sales, up to $200 million to this day, because it was just a movie that people would tell their friends about. And that's exactly how I saw it is, Ben, you had seen it. And I think you came to school the next day and you're like, dude, you have to come over tonight and watch this movie, The Boondock Saints. 
Yes. I actually did private screenings with all of my friends individually. I didn't host one movie night. It was like an intimate one-on-one screening experience to see this film that I thought was a masterpiece at about uh, 14, 15 years old or so. <laughs> yeah, JD, I mean, what what are your experiences with the Boondock Saints? Like, you must have watched it in high school around oh, the same time we did. Oh, my gosh, yes. My biggest memory of Boondock Saints is the time that I borrowed the special edition DVD that was in the, like, aluminum DVD case from one nice. of my classmates and watched it twice while I built my uh, awesome-o from South Park Halloween costume. <laughs> awesome. Um, in my parents' basement and I it took long, you know, I watched it once while I was building the costume. It wasn't done, so I said, you know what? Let's run that back. Nice. And that kind of sums up the kind of movie it is. It's the movie that a 16-year-old would make his uh, South Park Halloween costume to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you are under the age of 30, let's introduce this masterpiece. As we are. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I think that the Boondock Saints fucking rocks. We're going to get that out of the way right off the bat. This movie came out in 2000. Like Giordano said, it only found success on VHS and DVD sales. So it's one of the decade's first cult classic movies. And let me just say that every millennial man that you know has seen this film, even if they might not admit it. And what I find especially funny is I remember a time that collectively as a society, we all said, man, this shit sucks. This movie's bad. It's cheese. And we kind of consigned it to the, you know, embarrassing films of our adolescence category. But I rewatched it with Giordano. And not only does it hold up, this is my hot take incoming. I think it's better than a lot of the action movies that came out in the decade that follow it. So I'm thinking stuff like Olympus slash London has fallen or the John Wick franchises or any movie franchise that purports to be, you know, semi-grounded in reality. So none of the pew pew superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, maybe this is entirely the result of nostalgia on my end. This is one of the first R-rated movies my cousin ever showed me. So I got warm, happy childhood memories about it. But on the other hand, I have to suggest maybe pop culture actually has gotten this much worse. Most action movies, when they get made, are these bloated, cynical, soulless, corporate, paint-by-numbers exercises. I've seen all three of the John Wick movies, and I can't name a single character in them other than the title one. But I'm sure shit, never going to forget FBI agent Paul Smecker, played yeah. by Willem Dafoe. Rocco. Or Rocco. I never forgot Rocco. You're right. I watched this movie last night, right? And I it had so much more to love than I thought it would. Because like we watched it on St. Patrick's Day. Hell yeah. Yes. And Ben was like oh, remembering it as being like this sort of embarrassing, like a Dane Cook style thing. And I was like, no, like actually it's really good. It's, it's both. A simple movie. <laughs> it's good in a way that like a bad movie can be. Where, like, yeah. It has good action, a relatively simple, like easy to follow plot and a couple memorable characters. And the other thing that we're going to talk about this podcast is Troy Duffy, who really like deserves an episode all to himself and like what a fascinating character he is. Specifically, we'll be talking about the 2003 documentary called Overnight, which documented both Troy Duffy's attempt to make this movie and, and released his band's first album. Yes, Troy Duffy is a bartender or started as a bartender who wrote the Boondock Saints on his spare time and his script got picked up and they started rolling the cameras because the idea was even from the get-go, he was compared to Tarantino for this gritty, hyper-violent filmmaking. So the documentary, you get the sense they wanted to make is, what if we had cameras rolling during the production of Reservoir Dogs? But the result is so much better. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, preparing for this podcast, I watched like 13 hours of Troy Duffy interviews, Mm. and my brain is blood pudding at this point. And (laughs) 
<laughs> it's it was like a weird journey for me because it started off with us watching overnight and i was like oh he's a monster like he's an asshole of epic proportions and then i listened to 13 hours of interviews with him and i'm like oh he's misunderstood because what he always <laughs> says in these interviews when overnight is brought up is like oh they took me out of context <laughs> which is by the way impossible <laughs> because every scene in the documentary is like a five minute like, long shot of him ranting and so there's no way to take that out of context but then i watched the second movie the boondock saints 2 and i went right back to thinking that he's just like a, an asshole of epic portions because it's by far the worst movie i've ever seen in my it's like the worst movie in the world and not even in like a fun like campy way it's it's just unfathomably bad. Yeah, I thought that immediately upon seeing it, that it was the worst movie I'd ever seen. I was hyped to see it. Anyway, let's let's uh, we'll we'll get into the second movie later. But I just wanted to stop for a second and talk about like why are we talking about this movie? Because we haven't done an episode on 9-11, and this is a 2000s podcast. Mm-hmm. We haven't done an episode on the Iraq War, but we're doing an episode on the Boondock Saints. <laughs> And like Ben said, I think it's just this, if you talk to any guy who like was a teenager in the 2000s, this movie was strangely important to them. The, the, the fans are nuts. Like I was watching YouTube videos of the Boondock Saints and like, it is funny oh, how yes. many fans are like, yo, this movie changed my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or people talking about the second one and being like, yo, the second one was even better than the first. Or guys will get tattoos of the fucking prayer that they say before they kill people. Well, they're gun fingers, man. That was, I think, oh, the thing yes. to actually first maybe see this movie was seeing the guys with their cool, cool gun finger tattoos. Yeah, Equitas and very Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't it be really funny if we just like did not have our finger on the pulse of pop culture at all and this was <laughs> some kind of like regional southwestern Ontario phenomenon? <laughs> so why don't we all share like one embarrassing story about our fandom of the boondock saints because i like so i'll admit to you guys i i like i bought a bunch of posters in my first year in university i think i had a fight club poster i think i had a um snatch poster and i think i had a fucking boondock saints poster nice dude i think like i don't know like there there are a lot of quotable lines in this movie i think i might have memorized the silly prayer that they say the and shepherds we shall be prayer completely made up prayer by the way yeah (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i think he made it up with his dad troy duffy yeah i mean awesome again like the best bible is the bible that you write yourself it's like pulp fiction's ezekiel 25 17 (laughs) it's also not real bible yeah that is like another tarantino parallel the use of the prayer before killing someone jordan Uh, any embarrassing uh, boondock saint story before we get started oh hmm like, did you ever set your MSN messenger status to like, in shepherds, we shall be? <laughs> Probably. I, I could, I bet you anything that I had that memorized and also the speech from the courtroom also memorized. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and so listen, I can't confirm this, but I guarantee at least once at some point in high school, probably stood up and recited that together. So the movie's central message is what if God threw a toilet down from heaven to kill bad people? (laughs) It's about gritty, gross, vigilante justice and doing anything to save your brother. Yes, exactly. And And also about how it's okay to be exactly one gay guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's about how sometimes gay guys could be homophobic too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's one gay guy and that that and he's really good at his job. So yeah. it's all good. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yes, the, the Boondock Saints follows two Americans putting on the worst Irish accents you will ever hear on film who live in Boston. They are called by God through a shared brother dream sequence to go murder gangsters. At first, they, they accidentally get roped up into this feud between their favorite Irish drinking spot and the Russian mob. And gradually, they kill bigger and bigger fish in the mob chain as, an, as the aforementioned base gay guy FBI agent is on their tail. He gradually becomes more and more conflicted, eventually joining the vigilantes as they go on their rampage. And it's, I think it, it's a very, it's a dumb guy movie. Absolutely. It's a dude's rock dumb guy movie that asks the question that, you know, that classic vigilante reactionary question, is it right to take the law into your own hands if the courts are too corrupt and soft? And the answer is, of course. Fuck it. <laughs> awesome. There's too much dang red tape out there. (laughs) Someone's got to do something. Yeah. The central tenet of the movie is like, oh, is it okay to kill bad people? But their definition of bad people is is unclear. They bring up the Kitty Genovese murder, which was sort of a random act of violence. But it also exists in like a vague space where they're both anti-authority, but also pro-law and order. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like they never try to question like Rocco's moral complicity in the whole, like the fact that he's driving around this sadistic gangster who's murdering innocent people. But <laughs> he's cool because like he's their friend you know or the way they talk about the irish people in the neighborhood they're like the whole neighborhood's irish i'm surprised you even got a phone call Mm -hmm. so it's anti-police but uh pro-law and order (laughs) (laughs) it walks a very fine line also pro-catholic church and i mean i don't know who's seen searchlight who knows what the catholic church was up to in boston (laughs) around this time (laughs) Uh, actually fun fact they had to film all of the scenes in churches in protestant churches because the archbishop of toronto where the movie was filmed called troy duffy a demon (laughs) because he had like (laughs) read the script he saw he saw Troy Duffy's meteoric rise, his success. He he listened to Troy Duffy talk about how no one had ever done what he did. <laughs> and the archbishop said this man has clearly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've seen the devil and he wears overalls. <laughs> Uh, a joke that will only land with the people who have seen overnight. <laughs> Troy Duffy is always trying to p- paint himself as like this blue collar guy. And one of the ways he does that is just by wearing overalls all the time. <laughs> so let, well, when in Canada, <laughs> let's talk about what we like about this movie. So the number one thing about this movie, I think by far is, is Willem Dafoe and like his acting. Like this is a non-ironic take. I think he should have won best actor this year uh, in 2000 because best actor should go to the person who like, elevates yeah. the whole team the most and not just like a good player who's already on a good team you know Matthew Stafford can win MVP when he plays for the Rams but not when he plays for the Lions but the most valuable player is the person who elevates the movie as a whole the most and Willem Dafoe puts this movie on his back uh-huh. by the way the person who won best actor in 2000 Kevin Spacey <laughs> Yeah, but like Willem Dafoe elevates this movie more than Kevin Spacey in American Beauty. Yeah, from from like moment one, like this is a dumb movie. It's so much more competent and fun than I like thought it was going to hold up to be. But it's a dumb movie and it's a dumb character. And he just he's having so much fun. It's not yeah. trying to be anything more than it. Exactly. Movie, and that's usually when I call a movie dumb. That's what I mean, right? Like it's not trying to be something else. And it, it you know, it benefits from it. Yeah, we'll talk about this later. But that's the main sin of the second one. It's, it's trying to be more than a dumb movie. 
unfortunately. Yeah, and what's great about Willem Dafoe's character in this movie is that you kind of see the movie through his eyes. So there are these big set piece action sequences where our two main characters, our brothers, whose names are almost never said, I think they're Sean and Murph, as the McManix brothers do their thing. Usually the audience only sees it after the fact, right? We're Tarantinoing our plot line, telling the story out of order. And so we have this kind of CSI angle where FBI agent Paul Specker, played by Willem Dafoe, comes to the crime scene. And in the first opening scene, there's two dead Russian gangsters in a an alleyway. And there are these three moron Boston police officers who are coming up with crazy theories and their dumb Boston accents. And Willem Dafoe's character, he gets there, he tosses on some opera on his headphones, and he goes through the crime scene. He does science and forensics and absolutely owns these three Boston police officers. Makes them look foolish. Demands they get him coffee. That's thing number one. Willem Dafoe's off. Awesome. Thing number two that I will say about this movie, and, and it's funny, right? Like something that I hate about modern action movies is that they think that this gritty self-seriousness, like, you know, the, the stupid incel rampage movie that they keep making over and over again, it's not fun. Like this movie is violent, but it's fun in the vein of like, I don't know, Die Hard had jokes left, right, and center. The jokes land. They're a little dark, but you have Willem Dafoe cracking jokes at the Boston Police Department's expense there's a scene where when they finally get something right one of the foes says makes me feel like river dancing and then he dances a little jig and you have this character named Rocco who is the the McManus brothers best friend he's a numbers runner for the Italian mafia in Boston and he's really funny he has a he has a junkie girlfriend that he hates and he accidentally kills her cat at one point it's and and when the movie is funny through Rocco being problematic the joke is usually at Rocco's expense and not whoever the problematic insult is directed at right or there's a scene where Rocco's the funny man right that's his thing that's his persona and because he's a funny man he's put in this horribly awkward position where he has to tell a joke to the dawn of the italian mafia in boston and he tells a racist joke and he's horribly uncomfortable it is an uncomfortable scene to watch and this mid-level gangster is also in the room played by ron jeremy and ron jeremy keeps interrupting his racist joke to add more slurs to make sure he is in fact saying the n-word yeah and it's not a very funny joke but the humor from the scene comes from how Um, cringe it is (laughs) uh, i'm gonna give you some pushback on that (laughs) Okay. It's a functioning joke. I don't know if we're allowed to say it's funny, but... Mm-hmm. but... But the main humor comes from Rocco's awkward position yes. and having to tell a joke like under threat of death. Yeah. And what is it? Papa Joe's? Or... <laughs> yeah. Papa Joe Iacobetti. Papa Joe's hilarious nonverbal reaction to the joke. All week in my head, I was thinking of Willem Dafoe saying the phrase, some huge frigging guy. <laughs> Which yes. is a very funny. It's a it's a hell. It's a very very funny movie. Yeah. So, somehow. And so that used to be a given. That used to be a given in your blockbuster action movie that it would be a romp of action and like comedy kind of that like like you said like Die Hard right like a Die Hard Die Hard or like that most, was that most, just was the format. Yeah. Or most of Arnold Schwarzenegger's action movies. Yeah. Like okay, Terminator might not be that funny, but True Lies or yeah. like you know Commando, <laughs> very over the top. Even like T2 pauses every now and then to, to make a little a little jape. I can't think of a single one, but I, I think there was there's some bits about him being taught to smile and stuff. Yeah, Ben, do yeah. you have a point about how there's like there's no soy in this movie? Oh yeah, it is the least soy movie you will mm-hmm. ever see. It is like it, it is, is an extremely red-pilled red movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the action is well choreographed. 
Troy Duffy like didn't actually make that much money off the release of this movie because of the way his contract was structured, but was bailed out in the stupidest way, like which is very fitting for this movie. He insisted on getting the merchandising rights to the movie. And the studio, when it was released, was like, yeah, you made like a $6 million indie movie. We don't care. Because he was like, George Lucas made all the Star Wars money from the merchandising rights. So I'm going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so like the way that he actually made the most money from this movie was selling t-shirts at Hot Topic that were Boondock Saints t-shirts. I would love a Boondock Saints t-shirt right now. That would be a great. It's got, okay, it's got both of the Berettas, right? And they're side by side and they're pointing down where the, like the grip is maybe like at the shoulder and the silencer is like down near my cock, right? And like, uh, <laughs> but the fingers are also holding them. And so down, down the, my torso, it says Aquitas Veritas. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I think if you if you don't watch this movie, and you absolutely should, so much of this movie is based around looking cool. The brothers walk around wearing these dusters and sunglasses and smoking with their with their finger tattoos of Latin abstract concepts. And even when they are like going around doing their shooting business, there's a scene where they need to kill eight Russian mobsters in a giant presidential hotel suite. And they go in through the vents, they get tangled up in their own rope, and they plunge through the ceiling. They're hanging down upside down from the rope with their arms extended shooting these guys like fish in a barrel uh it's just it looks awesome it's just about looking cool so that scene holds up so much better than i thought it would this whole movie held up like i was prepared to watch this movie as a oh god look how poor this movie is aged and Mm -hmm. i just kept being surprised like for the reason like the inverse of the reason you described earlier ben you said you know uh not only is it actually good it's better than a lot of the crap that's that's come out since which is true i would concede that mm-hmm. ah, and that scene in particular was like my favorite as like a kid and it's yeah. awesome it's a great little action scene it's got a couple things that get set up to make a unique thing happen which is them like getting suspended from a rope it doesn't require a whole lot of explaining or for it to make sense for those who don't know this is the best action scene in the movie is the brothers having killed a couple guys kind of in a random encounter decide that they are going to just kill mobsters a lot i don't think we've explained the overall the overarching thing they become the saints of the boondocks <laughs> by like using their skills and the fact i think that they're not connected to anyone knows no one the mob doesn't know who they are man to go and kill people and so in their first job they do a, a vent job like they decide to crawl through the vent but since they're cool brothers they get in a fight in the vent they get a fight in the air <laughs> yes. duct over their targets a cool brother fight and they <laughs> they fight so vigorously that they they fall through the vent in the drywall but like they're like mission impossible ropes they brought with them somehow tangle around them which causes them to be suspended upside down like a like a gun chandelier but since they're they're cool and based they whip out their guns in time and take out an entire room of russian mobsters while hanging upside down it's yeah it's incredibly lucky all of the russian mobsters are sitting on a giant circular couch (laughs) (laughs) like a circular sectional couch it's perfect and it's perfect. Lots of squibs. Yes. Lots a lot of squibs. ton of squibs in this movie. Yeah. And that scene's so great because it's also funny. It's like a callback because when they're gearing up to go on this mission, one of the brothers wants to get rope and the other one laughs at him. And then the other one wants to get a big combat knife and the other one, the other brother laughs at him. Oh, are you Rambo now? And then both of those things come back like a Chekhov's gun. They get tangled up in the rope, which saves them. And then once they 
you've killed most of the mobsters is the Rambo rope that they get to cut free with. It's like, it's just really tight, good writing and choreography. And then when Willem Dafoe, his character is investigating the crime scene, they the, he has this fun little meta line. He says like, bad television is why we got this. This never happens in real life. What are the odds of this happening? And it's like, it's just enough meta awareness to be funny without being that obnoxious, winking, Joss whedon soy, uh, so that just happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Which they do a few times in this movie, but it's 1999 <laughs> and it's still cool. Yes. They, they and- like tap on the fourth wall a little bit. They don't do what yeah. they do now, which is to like completely like make a big thing about how they're breaking it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about yeah. some things about the movie that are not so great. The Boondock Saints and women. <laughs> yeah, so I, has- I had, yeah. I, I was like, because we're, yeah, we're watching this together and I was thinking like, there's no way this movie passes the best shell test, right? <laughs> like not even close. It doesn't, I looked it up, it doesn't pass any of the three requirements, meaning that it doesn't even have <laughs> two named <Yeah>. women. <laughs> So people are already probably familiar with the Bechdel test, which is a a test to measure representation in film that a surprising number of movies fail, even though passing the test is, is actually incredibly easy if you look at the rules, which are that you have to have at least two named female characters who speak to each other about something other than a man. So it's an incredibly like easy test to pass in theory, but a surprising number of movies fail it. Like over 40% of movies fail this test, including a lot of movies that win Best Picture. I mean, obviously the Moondock Saints does not pass this test. So I've created a new test, which is an even lower bar for female representation in film, which I call the Bichdel test. And I've now lowered the requirements that all you need to have to pass the Bichdel test is at least one female character in the movie who is either A, not called a bitch, or B, not a bitch. And that's all you need. This movie fails even this test. And so I think Ben put together a comprehensive list of all the women in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's pull this up here. Let's get Scooter to pull that up. Scooter. Uh, <laughs> Scooter, open my Google Docs for me. We're kind of we're kind of in a groove here. There's the lady in the meatpacking <laughs> plant <laughs> who gets offended that the brothers use the idiom, the rule of thumb, and kicks one of them in the balls and is promptly assaulted. <laughs> Yes. That's it. That's in the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah. The yeah. So, <laughs> so she's a bitch. So that, I mean, this woman fails the bitch del test. Uh, next, you have Rocco's junkie girlfriend who, who is called a bitch and yep. is a bitch, I believe. So she fails both of the criteria. Well, she does enter a room alone with her friend uh, Trina or whatever. And they are, I think, muttering to each other for a bit. And who knows who or what they're talking about <laughs> alone in that room together. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't if they're not named. Uh, but you're right. Oh, maybe is that part tr- of the Batchdale test? Yeah, they have to be named. Allison. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, one of the most memorable quotable scenes is as Rocco and the McManus brothers get drunk, Rocco accidentally kills this woman's cat and then yells at her for not being able to remember its name. Says that he killed her cat because he thought it would bring closure to their fucking relationship. Woman number three. (laughs) The gentlemen go into a strip club and have to (laughs) knock out a stripper. Uh, She is called a bitch. And then as she is unconscious, Rocco (laughs) gropes her breasts. And when he is caught by the brothers says, I'll tip her. So that's another one. And then the the three of them go to a suburban house to kill a hitman for the mob. Uh, they use the wife to put in the code for the garage door. And Rocco complains, why am I always on bitch patrol? So the streak continues. She was nice, though. <laughs> she was. Yeah, she's, she's called a bitch. That's the other criteria. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this 
the one that uh, you know doesn't quite work, but there is a lab tech who is bad at her job. <laughs> yeah, so uh, possibly the movie passes the the bitch del test because there's one character who's who's just incompetent, but not a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what she just couldn't get the blood from the ammonia. Yeah, but it's her job to know chemicals and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, that's by the true. way, uh, Roberta Angelica, folks. What is that the actress's name? That is the actress's name. And why do you know that? <laughs> why Why would I not? Can we just talk for one second about like who the McMurphy brothers are? The, there's some, there's some <laughs> not conceit. No, there, but there is. There's some conceit from the beginning of the movie that these guys are like are like famous in their community. Like uh, almost the opening scene, right? They're coming in. They're being angels. Not, being not cool in the church. And someone is like, what? And someone local is like, hey, no, these guys are cool. Like, yeah. Um, well, even like the lesbian, they fight. It kind of sounds like she like, okay, well, they first of all, when they walk into work, the first thing they do is like perform japes and, and brother comedy bits <laughs> with each other that like everyone at work is just cool with. They waste like, many kilograms of meat hitting each other with meat as soon as they, and everyone is so oh, yeah. charmed by it. Everyone thinks yeah. it's the most charming thing they've ever seen. And when they train that woman, it kind of sounds like she knows who they are. Like, I knew you guys were going to give me trouble. Like, yeah, these guys are just known in the, their part of Boston for just being like the coolest, most based drunk guys. Yeah. They're just let's, so cool. Let's list everything we know about the McMurphy and right. O'Finnegan brothers. Yeah. They, they are Irish. Mm-hmm. They are Catholic. Sure. Uh, they're so Catholic. Like they have the right to get up in the middle of mass, kiss the cross, and leave early for some <laughs> reason. They work in meat packing. They have they tandem are, brother dreams. They have tandem brother dreams. Exactly. Uh, and for some reason, they speak five languages. At least. At least. I think because their mother insisted on it. Yes. Oh, and also, there's a weird, they don't know who their father is plot line, but spoiler alert, over the course of this movie, they're going to find their father. Well, that's <laughs> why they speak like eight languages is that, well, yes, they they had to pro- possibly live a life on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's about it. Like I, for the life of me, I can never, like I can never remember the, the dude's names because it's like not important to the film. You know all you need to know. This movie has so little exposition that characters are introduced just with title cards saying like, mm-hmm. here's this person, here is their rank in organized crime. That's all you need to know about them. It's great. It is the opposite of stupid Game of Thrones where they try and explain all of the lore through their sex position. Yeah. How, how do these guys know five languages? Fuck you. That's how. <laughs> Watch the movie. <laughs> the, the whole thing with like Il Duce being their dad, all of the stuff around the plot that's the worst is generally related to the, the Billy Connolly character, I think. Like, like while we were watching this, we were laughing at <laughs> how when this guy's in jail, like <laughs> Yes, <laughs> he has like a Hannibal Lecter style like birdcage. <laughs> yes, no, they, him... they have this huge extended sequence of all of the precautions that they need to take to move this prisoner. So his his wrists are chained, his ankles are chained. I think he has some kind of mask. He's chained to a moving platform. There are guards standing on the walkways with rifles. They they have mirrors everywhere to look around corners, and they move him all the way in front of the parole board, and they drop a birdcage on top of him. <laughs> That's how dangerous this senior citizen is and he uh, gets parole yeah <laughs> <laughs> the birdcage guy gets parole <laughs> mafia has a lot of pull dude <laughs> yeah at the same time that that the also mafia... the movie's about how corrupt the system is so, so within true. the universe of the movie it makes a lot of sense so by the way true. the person who stamps his parole woman <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and this Billy Connolly character, who's clearly having a ton of fun, is introduced in the film because as the brothers start murdering mobsters, the mob starts to get scared. So they need to bring out their biggest, baddest, toughest guy to handle these vigilantes, the birdcage man. And what's wild about this plot line is that before the brothers execute someone in cold blood, they have a prayer that starts in Shepherds We Shall Be. Another Tarantino connection, some fake Bible religion for you. And they, they say to Rocco, their friend, that they can't teach him the prayer because it's passed down from father to son and so on and so forth. And eventually at the very end of the movie, like last 10 minutes, it's revealed that this birdcage senior citizen with whom they got into a firefight uh, is in fact their father because he knows that same prayer. Damn. <laughs> they did an Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the last three minutes of the movie. <laughs> Which is like the only reason they get away with it because it's like, oh, okay, well, the movie's ending anyway. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, one of the dumber things about this movie. They use some of like uh, Troy Duffy's band's music in the movie, which is like this like post grunge sort of style like Nickelback style music and I've talked to both of you guys about this recently about how like something so good grunge like evolved into something so much worse right into like the, the type of like hard rock that we had in the 2000s and so I was just thinking that like if Tarantino is grunge then like Troy Duffy is post grunge you know like yes. Tarantino is to Nirvana as Troy Duffy is to Nickelback like <laughs> and how much of like 2000s culture was just taking like gritty things from the 90s that we really liked and seeing a commercial opportunity and so putting on a fake grittiness at great financial cost to resell it as like authentically gritty like all the gritty reboots that came out in this decade which cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make or how like all furniture in the 2000s just or like at bars and stuff became like fake industrial equipment you know you'd buy like a, a table that was made to look like it was on pipes or something yeah and like forgotten corners of the world like here that stuff's still around right i mean but this that, that was all birthed i think in this decade because it yeah. there was like this authentic grittiness in the 90s and then in the 2000s we're like oh this like looks cool why don't we just make a fake version of this but which like completely misses the point of like why we liked the grittiness of uh, certain things in the 90s yeah it's a very uh the, the the band's music is a very like goatees and oakley's sunglasses kind of music <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> Okay, but uh, some of the music in this movie actually freaking rocks, though. Yeah, that, it turns out only, like, one or two songs are actually from Troy Duffy's shitty band. Yeah, <laughs> that, that track where it's, like, electronic, but yeah, it's got, like, the, the, the chanting. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh... God, that's when they... cool, and we speak Latin. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one they play as they walk into the courtroom, right? Uh, they, it, it shows up, like, two or three different times. Nice. I was thinking, I thought you were talking about the techno music they play, like, in the first action sequence when they throw the toilet um, onto the Russian mobsters. Which, by the way, Troy Duffy threw an actual candy glass toilet onto the stuntman for that scene and gave him a concussion. Because <laughs> he wanted it to be real. <laughs> yeah, man. And that's, like, that's one of the shittiest things about, like, the thing about movie making in Hollywood is that Hollywood is obsessed with itself. Like, think about how many movies there are about making movies it's like such a nasal gazing navel gazing mm -hmm. fucking industry and i think there's this huge mythos around directors who hate their actors most famously with like alfred hitchcock and stanley kubrick these two huge directors who would just absolutely fucking abuse their actors and so now i think there's an incentive to be mean <laughs> to yell at your actors 
uh, th- that's how you know you're serious and that's how you know you're good and you're walking in these footsteps of these greats. Yeah, apparently Troy, like if an actor had to be angry in a scene, Troy Duffy would prime them for the scene by purposely being an asshole to them. And I was like, yeah. there's no way that isn't like, you know, shooting an arrow and point, painting a bullseye around it later. Like, I think he's just an asshole. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah I was like that on purpose to make people upset. Yeah, to get, to get the to get the best performance out of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I want to add a couple more points about the first movie. Sure. One, Troy Duffy wrote this entire movie phonetically. Like the Irish accents were all written in the script. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know how literate he and his circle are. Like one of the most frustrating things about watching Overnight, the documentary about him, is all of the English idioms that are used not quite right. It's, it's there's someone who says, "Oh yeah, man. I mean, he just feeds." fits the pieces of the pie together just right and it's like puzzle pieces fit together <laughs> not <Yeah>. pie pieces <laughs> i know there's a, literally a bit about using idioms wrong that's yeah true. in the boondocks is. yeah it's like oh sorry in the overnight all right, all right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah but i think it's inspired by like his non-command of the english language he describes himself as having a deep cesspool of talent it's like <laughs> <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah. sick <laughs> A few other interesting notes about the movie. One, of all the, the men who could pass for a hot woman, I gotta say, Willem Dafoe is not one of them. <laughs> and yet oh. all, the, all the mobsters are fucking psyched to get a blowjob from Willem Dafoe in, in drag. But oh, yeah, we did. Like, they're, they're guys that are, you know, they're, they're used to a, a, a stripper-looking uh, lady. Right. I guess <laughs> yeah, I, we didn't mention that at the climax of the movie, Willem Dafoe dresses in drag and just murders a bunch of mobsters. It's right. Great. So, by the way, which he doesn't have to do the brothers escape anyway there's one more plot point that we haven't got to yet which is that detective willem defoe actually finds out who these boys are and then has a personal struggle because he doesn't know whether or not to arrest them because he can, mm-hmm. is actually considering now that what they're doing is good, like killing bad guys. And so in the end, you know, he goes to see a priest who's held hostage by Rocco and forced into uh, giving him advice that he should encourage the brothers. And and then the detective William Defoe uh, joins the Boondock Saints in their crusade rather than arrest yes. them. Yes. To also, almost no end. What sorry? To all, doing almost nothing in the process. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> All three of the detectives actually join them. The detective click is a great group of characters, by the way. It's a great mm-hmm. little like a uh, little Greek chorus. Um, yep. Is that you, did I say? Is that what that is? <laughs> They're standing around saying what the characters are doing. Ben, is that what that is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, we don't want any identifying markers on me. Okay, this is we need to keep this separate from the from the professional. Sorry, life. Ben. I won't tell anyone you're Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. They uh, just stand around, stepping on all the evidence, dancing across <laughs> like blood-stained couches, just whipping the bodies around, um, and just having a good time. And yeah. judging each other every time like Willem Dafoe's character does something gay. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Can you guys yeah, explain we been... a joke to me? Rocco says to the Russian So gangsters... there's there's Hispanic folks, <laughs> and there's a lot of them in America. <laughs> Sorry, what joke? Rocco says to the Russian gangsters, your pinky com- commie mother sucked so much dick, her face looked like an egg. Mm. Why does her face look like an egg? Because she sucked a lot of dick. White? I guess if you like, oh, okay. That's... But there's also a yellow center to an egg. Yeah, this, it, I don't remember that being the punchline. Your pink old commie mother sucked so much <laughs> dick, her face looked like an egg. And then they get in a bar fight. I, I, I was guess, distracted I, by the fact that like in the ideology of this movie, Russian gangsters are themselves communists. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. 
Also, also worth pointing out in that bar scene fight, Troy Duffy him, casts himself as an extra in that scene, wearing his signature overalls. He he thinks that he is the next Tarantino Hitchcock who also pulled that pulled that thing, that trick. Great. Yeah, there's like a whole genre of yeah, like Tarantino, Guy Ritchie, and, and Troy Duffy, whose, whose crime movies are all fantastic. Yes. But yeah, we've been going on for like an hour about the Boondocks. Yeah, let's, let's transition. Uh, let's move on to Overnight. This is a movie that dared to ask. What if Harvey Weinstein was the good guy in a story? <laughs> Which is actually the plot to Overnight. So Overnight is a documentary, as Ben mentioned, that's you know meant to was originally probably meant to showcase Troy Duffy becoming a filmmaker in front of your eyes because you know he he's a bartender who suddenly is directing a, a multi-million dollar movie while simultaneously publishing his band's first album. The band's name moves twice throughout the movie from The Syndicate to The Brood to The Boondock Saints. And it's just like an hour and a half of Troy Duffy either yelling at his enemies, yelling at his friends. And like it's just like him getting mad at people and, and it almost makes you feel like he's doing an impression of what he thinks people in the entertainment business are like which is like to be angry and upset with everyone in, in pursuit of your own goals he gets a teeny tiny little bit of success and declares victory like he gets a script picked up he himself is paid something like three hundred thousand dollars for it he's on like the local news and a couple local hollywood papers and he's talking about how no one's ever done what he's done he's made it like the movie hasn't even started pre-production yet and he's declaring victory like the closest thing i can think of is the meme where the guy's celebrating on the podium and he's in third place he's like fighting into the metal and doing everything (laughs) he's like that like when you hear about those cops allegedly looked at fentanyl and got an overdose that's him with fame (laughs) one of my favorite scenes is like they're starting to do casting and you just see him, and this guy loves being on camera, cannot get enough of it. He says, and, you know, he had a shot. Like, you see actual Hollywood stars come to his bar, his shitty, divey bar, to meet with him. So, like, Marky Mark meets with him, or Patrick Swayze comes and meets with him, or um, Vincent D'Onofrio comes and comes to meet with him. And he is just on the phone. He's like, I think that Keanu Reeves is a punk. I think that... Uh, I'll never do a movie with him. Yeah. Ethan Hawke is a talentless clown he's like i like branagh kenneth branagh that's who i guess he really wanted in the movie he's like but i'm not gonna wait forever for branagh and then as soon as branagh doesn't take his phone call he calls him a like (laughs) he just immediately antagonizes everybody around him in a way that he thinks is fine because he has the goods as he says in his own words and so he's the mega talented person and therefore he's allowed to do whatever he wants but what he does instead is basically just alienate like all of his friends and anyone in the business who wants to work with him to the point that Harvey Weinstein who is sort of the hero of the first half of the movie because he's the guy who elevates Troy Duffy from obscurity into the role and then even at that point like Harvey Weinstein like tries to shut down the movie because like he's such an epic asshole that they they shut the movie down essentially this movie like the documentary I would say fails the bitch del test I think there's three female characters one of which is like the studio head who is called a a, a I think technically and not a bitch (laughs) and then there's another woman who Troy Duffy wrote outside of a bar uh, which I should make the third rule in the the bitch del test either you are a bitch or called a bitch or are a in some way (laughs) and then there's one other character in the movie who is is Troy Duffy kind of accuses of being a bitch in what is my favorite scene of the entire movie I so I just wanted to play a clip uh, for you guys and I'll, I'll set up the clip by saying that up until this point in the movie like I said Troy Duffy has a just basically antagonist 
antagonize anyone he comes into contact with. He is ready to fight anyone who, who talks to him. And uh, he's, he's an asshole. Uh, uh, and so he goes to Boston University to speak to a bunch of film students. Yes, yes. I love this clip. <laughs> and there's a woman, which right, you know, right there, you know, it's not going to go well, um, <laughs> who tries to give him a compliment, but his brain works in such a way that if a woman is talking to him, I have to fight her. <laughs> yeah, and this is after everything's gone to shit, right? Like he, yeah. Miramax drops him. He works with a small independent studio, but he can't get a studio to pick it up for a wider release because Harvey Weinstein has like blackballed and blacklisted uh, poor Troy Duffy. Okay. And I think it's curious that you would not try again. Like you get almost to that point and you don't succeed with this one. You said you don't want to do it ever. Again. You know what that feels like after you have broken your fucking ass wide open a thousand times? and told the fuck off, got your heart pulled out, shoved down your throat. I'm kind of paying a compliment without, I'm just saying, well, I think I'm an asshole. saying maybe we should be a little more proud of, like, I don't, I just, even if I'm it doesn't proud, come out. Uh, this, is, this is like what, we, what we're talking about now. This is a conversation I've been having, I have with my sister. Okay, that part, I was just dying laughing because I just thought it, it showcased how well that like anyone who even tries to come up with him and say something nice be, <laughs> just draws his ire. Someone wants to be like, fuck you. You're my, you're like my fucking sister who always is talking about <laughs> shitting on my dreams. And the woman's like, yes. actually, I was just trying to give you a compliment. And he's like, you're ripping my fucking heart out. You know that? <laughs> She's very patient with him. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend this documentary highly enough. It's, it's free on YouTube if you want to see it. It's a tight 80 minutes of archival footage he has an entourage which is like very funny because he has some success and his entourage is made up of his bandmates his childhood friends his brothers whatever and like you're supposed to treat your entourage and he just abuses them <laughs> just relentlessly there are multiple shots of people just throwing glassware across bars as they're drinking again just really doing the end zone dance at like the 40 yard line is just it's 80 minutes of that constantly reminding his band that they would be nothing without him yes <laughs> and it's it's sad because like they can't kick him out of the band because he is sort of their one like lane to success and so like normally you would be magnanimous with that kind of power but instead he just uses, he takes every opportunity to remind them that like i i can be as mean as i want to you guys because i'm the only uh, way that our band will become famous yeah, I, it's, it's, it's again, the guy doesn't know when to quit. Like he got this sweetheart deal to make a movie, but the movie is not enough if his band can't also do the soundtrack. Well, at first he wants to direct. I need to yeah. direct. And then it's my band has to do the soundtrack as well. By the way, his band that he's constantly saying is it's going to change music. They don't have an EP. They don't, they don't have a demo. They don't they have, have a demo, demo to send to people. <laughs> And yet he's talking about how their band is going to change the music industry forever. And it's it's like when you're 15 and like you make a band with your friends and like none of you even play instruments. Hell yeah. So, so it's like <laughs> someone's, someone's going to be the manager. <laughs> yeah. The guy who made this documentary, which is a total hit piece, uh, is one of his close friends, too, to give you an idea of just like how much he antagonizes everybody in his life. Yeah. Actually, I mean, they, there's an amazing quote. He's like, if we pull this off, we're going to be the first people ever to have success in the two mediums of film and music. <laughs> <laughs> a classic duck, duffy move by the way is that idea of someone complimenting you and then you getting angry at them for <laughs> which happens again apparently in the director's commentary which i didn't watch but i read someone's notes of and it was very funny because it's basically just him and john patrick flannery like being a couple of guys being uh you know juvenile together 
and like sure. Willem Dafoe basically just like trying to ignore them. And at one point, I think like someone says, "Oh fuck yeah, Dafoe is in the, the second is half the, of the commentary, the consummate professional, like the only like." <laughs> All right. And at one point, I think someone like says that Tarantino influenced Duffy, <laughs> and Duffy gets Uh-oh. pissed off <laughs> and is like, "So what? We're creators. We go out and do these things to the best of our ability. There are similarities. There are differences. Everyone's gonna have their own opinion." He's just like all pissed off at the fact that someone. I think it's like what was probably meant as a compliment, you know, like filmmakers influence each other. He also makes uh, an anti-Semitic remark in the movie. He claims that the studio is getting Jewish. <laughs> and Tony Montana, which is his friend's name that made I mean, the documentary, mm-hmm. claims that there was way more homophobic, misogynist, and uh, racist comments that they had to take out of the documentary, but they chose to leave that one in. <laughs> Yeah, so is, to... is that why my government keeps telling me that BDS is anti-Semitic? <laughs> that makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> my research from last night is starting to make sense now. Troy claims the documentary takes him out of context. But as I've said, this documentary is, is a bunch of five-minute-long scenes of, of Troy like telling his friends that they're worthless. Like there's, like, there's no way to take that out of context. One thing that I do love is trying to see people in Troy Duffy's life who are trying to nudge him towards the right path. Like People give him advice that he just does not take. So mm. Willem Dafoe talks to the camera at one point. When they move to the part where they're actually shooting the film, you have Billy Connolly and Willem Dafoe who are like old. They've had careers in Hollywood. And Willem Dafoe says like, Troy could have success if he just shut his mouth. <laughs> like, like people see his potential and they're trying to like nudge him in the right direction. But the man's just so delusional. He can't do it. And yeah, if you want to see like, I don't know, he's like a, he's like a bizarre proto-Trump. And I hate to do that. I hate to bring in the big white boy. But like, yeah, he, 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 he has a great line where he's like, people across the, people across the country, people in Kansas and Nebraska, they have my photo on their fridge. Like you were in one local news segment, dude. What the hell? <laughs> and I mean, the ultimate irony is that this boorish guy who who worked at a bar did make a great movie. He was a first time director who somehow like knocked it out of the park. He did do a good job, and that's what like is so fascinating about. Like, if this was just like about some idiot who like made a bad movie, like it, it wouldn't nobody would care. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But like, what's so weird about this is this moron made a, a, a beautiful film <laughs> somehow <laughs> somehow i think and this might be a nice transition to talking about the boondock saints too briefly my theory is that in the early period at miramax and then later when he was with the independent producer he must have had just an army of editors and experts that unlike i don't know tommy weasel i just i watched the disaster artist a couple nights ago unlike tommy weasel maybe troy duffy actually listened to some of these people these people who like knew the industry and then in the boondock saints too they gave him a free hand maybe that's maybe that's how it all went down Okay. Yeah, because Woodhouse Saints 2 is, is not good. And so <laughs> like a lot of this week while I was preparing, like was just me sitting there thinking like, how does someone go from making such a good movie to making such a bad movie? Like what changes in their brain chemistry or in the process, especially when the first movie is like, you're a first time director who like doesn't know anything about filmmaking, you never went to film school. Mm-hmm. And so that's the good movie. And then you have 10 years of movie making experience and then you make the bad movie. It just doesn't make any sense in my in my brain. Yeah. Well, that's ego. If, if you're not in a position where your experiences mm. give you some sort of if you have too much ego your experiences and like your successes and failures don't give you like a correct degree of insight right sorry there's no joke here <laughs> just, okay now let's talk about the boondock saints too 
I'm not exaggerating for the purposes of this show is what I'm saying. I've been telling people for years that Boondock Saints 2 is my least favorite movie of all time. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. Like 0%. It's, there's nothing good or redeemable about this film. Nope. I looked at my letterbox and yeah, like it's, it's worse than all of the other bad movies that I had rated, like the Sex and the City movie and like some other ones. It's like, yeah, this is just repulsive in every way. Yeah, um, you need to take point on this because I also did not rewatch it, but I have some vague memories of when I watched it 14 years ago. I was, the, years ago, I was the only one who could go over the top <laughs> and, and, Seriously. and rewatch this one. So I think right from the first scene of the movie. <laughs> from the get-go, from the voiceover that begins, the, the talkers and doers monologue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, did you know there are two kinds of people in this life? There are talkers and there are doers. And that the talkers, they just talk, but the doers, they're the men of action. <laughs> There's two kinds of people in this world when you boil it all down. You got your talkers and you got your doers. Most people are just talkers. All they got is talk. But when all is said and done, it's the doers who change this world. I have a theory that there are two types of men in this world. (laughs) There are talkers and there are doers. Yeah, Wait, that's a, I, I did get that far. Sorry, that's, I got five minutes into it. This, he, he's doing Jordan Peterson Duffy. Oh, okay, I got there. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to, to place that. Nice. You, you know, I was thinking to myself recently uh, that if I went out for a pack of smokes, you know, I, I couldn't walk down the street without running into nine guys, you fuck. <laughs> 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 I, and I want to talk about this movie because I think it's very telling about how the decade started and how the decade ended because the first movie comes out in 2000 this one comes out in 2009 and the first movie is concerned with urban decay and crime right which like at the end of the 90s is still like a big thing like it's a problem these like sort of external natural enemies and throughout the 2000s we see a lot of like restoration of the uh, American cities which have been blighting since the 70s and so the Boondock Saints is about cleaning American cities just as that's actually happening in society you know and and the boys they live in south boston in these like illegal lofts and there's this like grittiness to cities that by the end of the decade is just gone because the population has aged and yuppies have taken over the cities right seriously like if you go to this exact loft in south boston where it's filmed i'm 100 percent sure that there's like a food truck festival happening right now (laughs) that serves lobster tacos and has a bunch of different swings where you can take instagram photos and so my point here is oh, yeah, that, the- that section of Bloor that Rocco crosses to do the murder that one time, like, uh, is probably full of, yeah, trendy bars now. Yeah. You, uh, we're past artisanal breweries now. The new thing is mead, okay? Get me an artisanal meadery, all right? <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, my point here is that the second Boondog Saints movie comes out and it it doesn't have a grounding in reality at all because the urban blight is gone. And so what we get instead is this cartoonish, grotesque, 150 minute masturbation where Troy Duffy and his alphaness can no longer antagonize crime. And so what they do instead is to fight back against cancel culture (laughs) and like the (laughs) pussification of the Western male. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, it's the end of the decade. Our external enemies are defeated, right? Crime is 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 down. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan have been invaded. And so the only enemies left are, are within ourselves. And so we get this, this perfect uh, encapsulation of the movie, which I'm going to play right now, which is this insane schizophrenic rant where, like, I don't even, but I guess I should get into the plot of the movie. Basically, someone frames the boys in, by trailing a priest so that they have to come back to America. 
And anyway, I don't even want to get into the plot because like it just falls apart completely. There is no, the plot of the movie is like, look how cool it is that these guys are. Do they ever talk about the war on terror at all? No, no, definitely not. Yeah. Okay, Okay, so let me me play this clip. Look how fucking beautiful we are. You think the men that built all this had it easy? Hard men. Doing hard shit. And that gives me a hard on. But not in the gateway thing. No, no, of course not. Yeah, it goes without saying. I am so sick of this self-help, 12-step, leftover, hippie generation bullshit. Now they don't want you to do anything, right? Just sit there. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't drive fast. Kiss my ass. Fuck it. Do it all, I say. You think Duke Wayne spent all his time talking about his feelings with a fucking therapist? There's no fucking way he did. John Wayne died with five pounds of undigested red meat in his ass. Not Actor Man. Real men hide their feelings. Why? Because it's none of your fucking business. Men do not cry. Men do not pout. Men catch you in the fucking door and say... Thank you for coming out. Okay, so <clears throat> my favorite part of that rant is when he rants against this leftover 12-step hippie bullshit. <laughs> He's ranting about the 12-step program. Yeah, just a conflation of Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> and the hippie movement. Well, when I think of the hippies, they're famously sober. <laughs> yeah, they're, he's, it's 2009, and he's, he's ranting about an anti-alcoholism program that was developed in the 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> He's a 1930s reactionary. So topical. What some, is the- of these, some of these lines are literally, I think, lifted from a Dennis Leary bit. <laughs> like the, the line about John Wayne having undigested meat in his ass. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's an audio medium, but so you can't hear it. But the, the second half of this, mo- the first half of this monologue, they're on a rooftop looking at skyscrapers that men built, hard men. And the so they're on the half- rooftop set from the room. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> the second half of the monologue, they're on an, a hockey rink for some reason. Mm-hmm. So that as soon as they're done, a random hockey player can skate up to the camera and say, thanks for coming out and make a shot, a slap shot. It's- That's Detective Greenlee. It is? <laughs> yeah. I really wish I'd rewatch this movie because that unhinged rant is one of the only things I remember about that movie. Because I remember being like, okay, now we're really... Like, I was a pretty dumb guy at like 1920. Like, I still had like remnants of like the ideology of... Let's stop using that word. Of the, like the ethos of the Boondock Saints was still within me a little bit. And even I was like, this guy is just just doing it like a Facebook rant in his movie. What the fuck? <laughs> and I should, know, I should note that I'm not... Okay. Um, this happens as part of another synchronized brother dream that they mm-hmm. set up in the first movie <laughs> in one scene, right? Right? They're having a synchronized brother dream about Rocco. And this is Rocco's only scene in the movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, because they replace Rocco with like a new Rocco. Like they regretted their uh oh. their choices in the first film. And so they they just in the second film, I know they meet a guy who I believe is Mexican. Yeah, they replace Rocco with a Mexican guy named Romeo. And it's just like, yeah, their new olive-skinned friend for the whole movie, <laughs> oh. but Rocco does it. Here to collect a paycheck for for that scene. Mm-hmm. Oh. 
How much throughout this movie is the the guy who's not Norman Reedus ad living? Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah, that guy just walked onto set every day and was just like, "Oh, I'll just say whatever." That guy might be the only person in the world who's like a bigger douchebag than Troy Duffy. And douchebag isn't even the right word; it's just like a less cool guy. That guy sucks. I was listening to some, <laughs> some interviews with him, and he is like brutal. He's so uncool. His review: he was telling people to go watch Boondock Saints too in an interview. And he, his line, he was like, uh, "Watching Boondock Two is like uh, taking a Playboy playmate to your senior prom and then banging her and her twin sister afterwards." <laughs> like, no, it's not. And yeah. you're like 45 years old. <laughs> like, why <laughs> is that your coolest situation you could imagine? Yeah, good God. I remember two things about this movie. I remember one, it shows really how important fucking, this is such a banal observation, but it shows how important writing is over acting because most of the cast of the first one is back for this, right? Like mm -hmm. we have isolated, we have a control group and the script is just so bad that even Detective Greenlee and the other detectives, they're like clownish fools. They're like mugging for the camera. I just remember being like, oh, this is, this is awful. These are like, you know, my, these are my friends from Boondock Saints 1 and they're not looking they're not doing good and then there's an FBI agent who puts on a southern drawl and I just remember the line where she says something like it's special agent you have to say the special because it makes me feel special or something of that nature yeah well let me list what I remember and maybe I can help the audience also understand this movie a bit the only things I remember about this movie are yeah Willem Dafoe does not reprise his role as agent Paul Smecker but obviously Duffy wanted him to and what they have is a southern lady cop who is also an FBI agent if I recall correctly um, who just does the same bit except that she's a southern lady it's the same bit she walks into crime scenes and goes points finger guns around and does like visual calculus and just <laughs> apparently um, while making it duffy would just constantly like put her like try to put her in like the the most skin tight outfits and talk about how great her ass looked i mean oh, obviously i don't recall that but yeah i remember her being like a a i don't want to insult this woman like i i, I remember her being not unattractive but like the kind she's the kind of attractive that like a um that guy attractive. yeah anyway there's that Ricky's in it. Ricky from Trailer Park Boys. Is in it. What? Right. He's the conciliary to, um, <laughs> what's his face? Like, they brought in all the big stars for this movie, you know? Oh, the stars are here. Yeah, they <laughs> they went back to Toronto, I assume, and they were like, okay, we're going to have a hockey rink. We're going to have Ricky. And Judd all Nelson that stuff was on is, plays the mob boss, hot off playing the slacker in the breakfast club. And Ooh. Ricky from Trailer Park Boys plays it. Okay, I'm looking up some pictures. Let me be clear. This lady's hot. <laughs> But in a way, that would be like the, the target audience of 1999's Boondock Saints would, would be like, this yeah. is the woman that you bring to prom and bang <laughs> her after to be like, fuck yeah. So just getting back to Rocco's rant a little bit. I mean, like I said, the, the, the main issues with this movie doesn't seem to be crime per se. It, it seems to be the fact that like guys cry now. Like the enemy isn't Kitty Genovese so much as it's about men talking about their feelings. And so one like really interesting turn, I thought, especially given that this movie is made like 10 years later, is that the first movie has definitely a hint of homoeroticism, right? There are the scenes with the detective, like the brothers. Yeah, a hint, dude. Just a hint. Of, the brothers like <laughs> sleep naked in the same room. 
room. <laughs> There's the scene where they're they're cauterizing their wounds. That's like, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, 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 <laughs> we don't need to put our Freud caps on too hard, but it's like one man holding another man down as a third man applies a hot iron to them, and everyone <laughs> grimaces. The man in the middle winces. Yeah, <laughs> they bite down. Yeah, um, see where the, 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 one of the brothers kisses Rocco on the lips, but puts his hand between it so it's not gay. <laughs> but what, like, an interesting turn I thought is that there is homophobic language in the first movie, but it's used by the Russian bad guys or the dim-witted cops. Whereas in the second movie, the homophobic language is used by the saints, directed at each other or their enemies. They, like, yeah, it there, gets turned on its head. There was a literal record scratch in that ranch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Record scratch. But not the gay way. Do, yeah. do, I just like to note Smecker uses uh, the homophobic language in the first movie because it's cool if he does it. Yeah. Because yeah. he is the based gay guy, and that means he's homophobic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think another phenomenon that this is an example of that I think we see cranked up to like 20 now. In 2009, someone said, let's mine some established intellectual property. Was anyone clamoring for a sequel to the Boondock Saints in 2009? Yes. You you think so? Me. Okay. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Yeah. But I I don't know. I see this like an early iteration of the attempt that you see to find some random intellectual property that you kind of remember from your youth and to crank out a new one of that. Like why? I don't know. You see it with Transformers. They made a fucking battleship movie. And I think you see the window, the window of cranking out the remakes is getting smaller and smaller now. So Dexter ran for like seven or eight seasons and it got very, very bad. And Dexter ended in, I don't know, Dexter ended in like 2014, maybe. Mm-hmm. And they, they popped out a remake in like 2020 or 2021, like six or seven years after this thing ended. Our window or they made a, they rebooted Prison Break for God's sakes. Things that weren't even that successful are getting their remakes because it's like, hey, you remember this stuff you remember the stuff from five years ago because everyone has goldfish memories they're making a third this movie is already in pre-production to make a third boondocks as well so uh, i can't wait <laughs> yeah, and, and this sequel did sort of kill the first in a way because one of like the strangest details is that their plan in the first one is to kill joe yakovetta as like a coming out party and you know they they tell they're like tell everyone what happened here that no one is safe and then presumably they go on to like do this more. But what we learn in the second movie is that like after killing Joe Yacovetta, they just go to Ireland. They've been hanging out since then. So they just didn't carry out their plan at all for no reason. They do like a Godfather 2 thing in the movie where they like attempt to go back to the 50s to explain like the origins of Il Duce. Mm. And it's just like stupid because if you're paying homage to Tarantino in like a dumb crime movie, that makes sense. But if you're paying homage to a, a, like an actual like film, The Godfather, <laughs> it's just so out of place in this dumb shoot 'em up movie. Are there, Jordano, are there any good action sequences in this even? No, they're, they're so brutal because the first one had a good action sequences in the sense that things felt like there were, it did feel like there were some stakes, but, but the second one, like the, the brothers have become so established as incredible killers that their safety is never in question because they can, you know, just kill everybody in a, in a moment without ever putting themselves in harm's way in a way that a lot of action movies are, are really bad now. That, that rant that I, we played on the sh- on the podcast is the inflection point where the movie goes from being horrible to unwatchable. It's like staring into the sun watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because at least like the first 90 minutes of the movie, you can follow. Like, it's like, okay, it's bad, but like, it, there is a plot. The last hour of the movie is so incomprehensible where you're like, oh, the, the real enemy was actually this other guy that, and he's been the El Duce's enemy since the 50s. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to point out two of my least favorite lines from the movie. One is the Mexican, their new Mexican friend, Romeo, is, is fighting someone and the brothers are trying to decide on who to bet on, the, the Mexican guy, Romeo, or his opponent, who's French, of course. <sighs> Romeo says, you got to bet on the Mexican. You ever had Tabasco sauce? What kind of fucked up people would even invent that shit? <laughs> it's like, oh spicy sauce the thing that every <laughs> culture in the world has basically outside of western europe this is the the inverse of the joke mayonnaise is too spicy for white people right <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. my least oh. my other least favorite line is at one point the very competent detective like sums up because uh, romeo is only given a small gun like a 22 caliber or something which they played as some kind of comedic effect and the the woman detective is like well bringing that is like bringing a knife to a gunfight and then greenlee who has like a big crush on her tries to one-up her by saying yeah or like uh bringing a really small gun to a gunfight and this movie this line i had to pause it and, and like take a moment because duffy recognizes that Greenlee's line would be stupid because it's not enough of an analogy because both parts are uh, are like an actual description of what happened. He did bring a small gun to a gunfight, but he's not self-aware enough to realize that the first line, which is supposed to be brilliant, which is like the bringing a knife to a gunfight, is is that's already one out of the two things that actually happened. It was a gunfight, so you can't make a <laughs> you can't make an analogy where half of the analogy is already the thing that happened. Like he described bringing a small gun to a gunfight as like bringing a knife to a gunfight, and so. This movie is like, you know, I said there's that detail at the end of the first one where you find out that Billy Connolly is the boy's father. It's like, what if you took that detail and made two and a half hours about that worst detail of the first movie, essentially? Yeah. It's so yeah. cartoonish. There's no reality in it at all. Um, yeah, like all, a lot of the things that we've been hammering on, like the Boondock Saints is almost zero exposition. You don't need it, right? This is a movie that is driven by the big dumb guy question. Is it right to take the law into your own hands when the institutions are too corrupt? Yes. Instead of any of that, it's a lot of exposition. It's about the boy's father's backstory. It's like, no, that's not what made this great, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what made this fun. And yeah, the Boondock Saints is a tight 90. It's simple. It knows what it is. This is a great heartbringer of of things in our culture that got really bad around this time is the fact that like every movie became two and a half hours long. Yeah. Because I guess you have dumbass fans who are okay with it. People love this second movie. Like I said, if you go to the YouTube comments for the movie... It's people being like, oh, this movie's like better than the first (laughs) because it's longer. Watching all these interviews with Troy Duffy, by the way, he's always talking about his other projects. Um, he's like, oh yeah, I'm so busy right now. I'm working on like three other projects. Like I'm, I'm directing and writing like three other movies. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I looked up one of his other projects and I'm like, I'm listening to him talk about what he's, he's they're like, oh, what movie are you making one time? He's like, yeah, I'm writing this movie. And this is, this is a quote from, I'm not making this up. He goes, I'm writing this other movie. It's about two guys who hunt down serial killers. And there's an FBI agent who's trying to hunt them down and i'm like that's that's the same movie that's boondock saints that's non-irish boondock saints is what that's 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 what if the boondock saints were dexter <laughs> that's what it is uh, um, all right gents closing thoughts on the boondock saints cinematic universe uh i i think i think what it is if i were to summarize what both why i love this movie and why i think it's 
significant for the decade and how it's different from what we have now is that it's fun. It looks like people had fun making it. There are three different scenes of the brothers just getting drunk with the boys. That's what religiously inspired vigilante terrorism is actually about. Just having a good time. Like there, there's a there is a scene in this movie. It's a, a throwaway little scene in the suburban shootout where one of the brothers shoots a mobster, catches the bullet casing out of midair as it pops out of the chamber of the gun, and then he does a sign of a cross with it just to look cool yeah, and uh-huh. badass. <laughs> It's just, it's not soy, it's not cringe, it's not, you know, uh, pissing all over the fourth wall and winking at you that it knows it's a movie. And I think this is, this contrast comes down to an issue of contemporary cynicism versus like genuine dumb guy behavior of the early 2000s. Modern action movies lean hard on cynicism because they think that that gives them grittiness or gravitas, right? This is serious, okay? This is about how you, if you push a patient man, he's going to go crazy. It's just going to go nuts man like don't mess with john wick or and i think what's funny is that on the surface the boondock saints has the same plot it's about a world that's like fundamentally corrupt and irredeemable so much so that you go on your massacre rampage but it doesn't mean you can't have fun while you're doing it (laughs) it doesn't mean you can't look cool this is a movie that an actual human being got up and wanted to make yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the product of an algorithm or focus grouping. This has the stamp of an auteur on it. Hell yeah. yeah. Sweet. Well, yeah. thanks for joining us. And into nomadi patri defili. Yes, shepherds we shall be through the culture of the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best one.